Really? Is that it? <laughs> Try it again. Merry Christmas to you. Merry All right, there we go. That's a little better. How many of you are planning to be here Christmas Day? That's fantastic because I'm going to be here Christmas Day. And uh, we've got something really special planned for you on Christmas Day. Preparing a special message called The Journey to Bethlehem. And it's the tracing of the prophecies of Christ through the Old Testament leading up to that wonderful event on that first Christmas morning. So you want to be here for that. We have some special music that people have been preparing as well to, for Christmas morning. And so it's going to be a wonderful time together celebrating the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not having a Christmas Eve service, though, and I just want to maybe speak for a moment to that and clarify that. We're not doing a Christmas Eve service, although we traditionally do one and have every intention of doing one next year. But with Christmas Eve falling on a Saturday night and Christmas on a Sunday morning, the decision was made to forego the Christmas Eve service this year just because people are tired. People are really tired, and so to try to put it all together... Uh, we just felt like it was straining the resources a little bit much this year. So we are foregoing the Christmas Eve service this year. We put all our emphasis into Christmas morning. I'm glad so many of you are going to be here. You don't want to miss it. If a Christmas Eve service, though, is something that's really meaningful and part of your family tradition, Summit Bible Church, our church plant, will be here celebrating their Christmas service on Saturday night at 5 o'clock, and you are welcome to participate with them in their Christmas service. They rent a community center over in Fontana, and the community center is not open on Christmas Day. And so by virtue of the fact that we were not going to be having a Christmas Eve service, this facility is available for them, and so we're delighted to host them here. And they have, I've spoken with Jeremy, and he said, if you would like to come and to celebrate Christmas with them at 5 o'clock on Saturday night, you are very, very welcome to come and be part of that, okay? So, but I plan to see you all. Every one of you who raised your hands, I know who you are, okay? <laughs> and I am looking forward to seeing you here Christmas morning. I can't think of a, a more delightful way to celebrate Christmas than to be with God's people, to sing his praises, to open his word, and to hear from him. Open your Bibles up now this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 and... Verse 6 this morning, we're returning to the Sermon on the Mount. We're returning this morning to the Sermon on the Mount. And with it, this particular section, really beginning in verse 1 and ending in verse 12, and we have outlined this together in an eight-part series. So we have an eight-part sermon series on these first 12 verses, looking at the Beatitudes. And we have noted that the purpose of all of this is that these Beatitudes present a description of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. These descriptions build upon one another. Each one sort of leads into the the next, and they are all rooted in some significant promises of the Old Testament, We've also noted, and we'll continue to note because we all are a bit forgetful, that the Beatitudes are not requirements for works that merit God's approval. It is not a list of gotta-dos. I have to do this, and I have to do that, and I have to do this in order for God to approve of me. That is not what the Beatitudes are about. 
They are instead character traits of what it means to be a disciple or a true believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Christ this morning, if you have been saved by grace through faith alone, then these characteristics are true of you. They are true of you. And so as we look at them, what we want to note is what are they and then how are they being manifest in our lives? So a little self-evaluation. And then what do we do to, to cultivate a greater level of discipleship? We are disciples. We are disciples. And so all of these characteristics, all eight of them, exist in principle in every follower of Jesus Christ. But they have to be cultivated in the process of discipleship. And that's what we're really talking about is the process of discipleship. We're looking at each of these Beatitudes now in a three-pronged approach, right? We're taking a three-pronged approach to each one of the eight descriptors. And it's a very simple approach. Three words, three prongs. First word, designate. Second word, evaluate. Third word, cultivate. Designate, evaluate, cultivate. Each week, that's what we're going to do. We'll designate what is the characteristic of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Then we will do a little self-evaluation. The Spirit of God will search our hearts. How do we measure up in these areas? Where are we lacking? Where do we need to grow? And then how do we grow in our likeness of Christ as a disciple? That's the cultivate part. Okay? You ready? All right, let's designate the characteristic for this morning. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We've seen in the prior weeks that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that we are humble, verse 3, right? Poor in spirit, we said, means to be humble. We've also noted that as a disciple or follower of Jesus Christ, we are repentant, Verse 4, we are the ones who mourn. We are repentant. We noted last week in verse 5 that the followers of Jesus Christ are gentle, and we said that that essentially means submissive. So we are humble, we are repentant, and we are submissive. We are not as humble as we would like to be or we should be. We are not as repentant as we would like to be or should be. We are not as submissive as we would like to be or should be. But all of these are true of us in principle and are growing in practice as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to add another one. Jesus himself will add a fourth characteristic this morning. And the characteristic is famished. Famished. Followers of Jesus Christ are famished. And what are they famished for? Verse 6, they are famished for righteousness. They are famished for righteousness. What is righteousness? Let's just sort of ask that question. What is righteousness? If we're supposed to be hungry and thirsting after it, if we are to be famished for righteousness, then we need to ask the question, what is it? What is righteousness? Well, you'll notice the word right appears in the word righteousness, and that gives us actually a a real insight into the definition of what we're talking about. 
Righteousness means, or to be righteous means to be upright. To be upright. Or to be just. To do what is right. And most importantly, to do and be what God requires. To do and be what God requires. That's what it means to be righteous. Negatively speaking, it means to be free from sin. Positively speaking, it means to be holy like God. That's what it means to be righteous. Now, Matthew here, in recording Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, he is not emphasizing righteousness in the same general way that the Apostle Paul does. When the Apostle Paul speaks of righteousness, he he normally speaks of what's called imputed righteousness. That is the righteousness of God that becomes ours by grace through faith and, and enables us, equips us, makes us perfect in order to stand in the presence of a holy God. That's Paul's general message of righteousness. Matthew is not talking about that here. In fact, the the righteousness that is spoken of here in in chapter 5 and verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, is the practical side of righteousness. It is the practical side. It It is the righteousness that manifests itself in a person's life. It is observable. Let me show you that. If you'll turn back to the left a couple of pages in your Bible to chapter 1 and verse 19. Chapter 1 and verse 19. Here Matthew records for us Joseph, Mary's husband, right? Being a, notice it, righteous man. Being a righteous man. It is speaking of his moral character. It is speaking of his standing in the community. He is a man who does what is right. He is a man who does what is pleasing to God. You can turn to your right a little bit to chapter 3 and verse 15. Where there Jesus is coming to John the Baptist to be baptized, right? And John wants to prevent that. And Jesus answers and said to him, verse 15, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That is, that God has commanded all believing Jews to come and to be baptized in preparation for the coming of the kingdom. And so Jesus, as a believing Jew, has to come and and do this because that's what it means to be righteous. And so it is the fulfillment of all righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 10. Just illustrations here. Chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The persecution originates because of their upright behavior, because of their moral standing, because of their allegiance and attachment to those things that are considered right in the sight of God. And there are a number of others. I'll show you one more. Chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men, right? To be noticed by them. Same, same basic idea. It's talking about our external standing. Okay, there is a, when we get there, we'll explain a little more what that means. But the point is that, that none of those references are to the imputed righteousness that the Apostle Paul talks about. They are to the practical outworking of right behavior before God. So this beatitude in Matthew 5 and verse 6 is not about how we become righteous. That's the doctrine of justification. 
But it is about how we who have been made righteous by grace through faith in the saving work of God, how we are to live out that righteousness. It's about living it out. Okay? It's not about how we become right, but about how we live right. How we live right. Later, actually, in this sermon, Jesus will will make a contrast between the, the righteousness uh, behaviors and notions of the Pharisees and what God truly desires and requires, right? And he'll end chapter 5 and say that you need to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. Can't wait to get there to that verse either. So it's about practical living this morning. You got it? It's all about practical living. So are you ready to be practical this morning? Good, me too. If I want to know what a a righteous man is like, I go to the Word of God. And when I when I think about where would I go in the Word of God in order to to have a a description and, and illustrations of righteousness, what God requires, the book of Proverbs comes to my mind. I my mind is drawn to the book of Proverbs. Because the book of Proverbs is a, is a very practical book, isn't it? It is all about teaching children how to live with wisdom. That is, to, how to live a life pleasing to God. How to live a righteous life. And so that's what we're going to do this morning for a few minutes, is I'm going to turn you to the book of Proverbs, and we're going to take a jet tour through the book of Proverbs, looking at some of the characteristics of righteousness in the book of Proverbs. Who are the righteous? What do they do? And why do they do it? From the book of Proverbs. So let us begin in Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. The righteous live their lives in light of eternity. They live their lives in light of of eternity, knowing the writer says, the fear of the Lord. Knowing the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. To know wisdom and instruction. To discern the sayings of understanding. To receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. Drop down to verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The righteous begin living in light of eternity. Living in light of eternity. It is always on their mind. They recognize their mortality and they order their steps accordingly in what the writer calls the fear of the Lord. It all begins with the fear of the Lord. This pursuit brings clarity to the issues of life. It brings clarity to the issues of life. Turn over to chapter 4 and notice what the writer says. The fear of the Lord brings clarity to the issues of life. Verse 18, chapter 4. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. 
ordering our lives in light of eternity, in the fear of the Lord, when we begin to walk in that path, the writer says that it's like walking into the rising sun. As it begins to come up and you walk straight into the sun, keep the sun in your eyes, and it grows brighter and brighter and brighter for you. There is a a clarity that comes to life. The righteous know how to live. Decisions begin to to become obvious to them because they are walking into the light of the Word of God. There is a clarity that comes to a righteous life that describes a righteous life. The righteous, according to the Proverbs, are not controlled by material wealth. Go over to Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 4. Proverbs 11 and verse 4. Solomon says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteous understand the correct balance and use of the material world. Because it starts out with their recognition of the fear of the Lord and their living in light of eternity. They understand that life is not all about what it is here and now. It's not how much we can gather to ourselves. That is not the full extent of a man's life. They recognize that in the end, it doesn't matter how wealthy one is. It is righteousness that matters before God. And so they are not controlled by their material possessions. Accordingly, the righteous are generous. Chapter 21 of Proverbs. The righteous are generous. 21, verses 25 and 26. Proverbs 21, 25 and 26. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving. And then notice this. While the righteous gives and does not hold back. The righteous man, the righteous woman, the righteous person gives and does not hold back. Righteousness manifests itself in a generous nature. A generous nature. Why? Because they are not controlled by their wealth. Furthermore, righteousness evidences itself in a compassionate nature. The righteous are compassionate. Chapter 12 and verse 10. Chapter 12 and verse 10. Compassionate. Proverbs 12.10. A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. But even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. The righteous is is a person of compassion. And that compassion extends even down to the animal realm. Even to those beasts that are, that are given to them to work for them, those that are to plow their field and to do the hard labor, they have compassion even upon them. And if they have compassion upon the, the working animals, they would obviously have compassion upon those that are made in the image of God. The righteous are compassionate. The righteous are also content. They are content. Chapter 16 and verse 8. Proverbs 16 and verse 8. Contentment describes the righteous. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. 
The righteous understand that it's, that it's better to have a little and live right before God than to be rich and to be found his enemy. There is a contentment that goes with a righteous life. The righteous live a life of integrity. A life of integrity. Proverbs 20 and verse 7. Proverbs 20 and verse 7. A life of integrity. Verse 7, a righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. How blessed are his sons after him. The righteous man walks in his integrity. He's a man of integrity. And as a person of integrity, the righteous will not tolerate falsehood. They will not tolerate falsehood. Chapter 13 and verse 5. Proverbs 13 and verse 5, a righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. The righteous cannot tolerate falsehood. They hate it, the proverb says, because they understand it to be attack, to be an attack upon the character of God. The righteous will not tolerate injustice either. Chapter 29 and verse 27, 29, 27. Solomon writes, An unjust man is abominable to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is abominable to the wicked. Notice again that there's no middle ground given in these Proverbs. The unjust man is is abominable in the sight of the righteous. They cannot tolerate injustice. They cannot look the other way. That makes them concerned about society. The righteous has a concern about society at large. Chapter 29 and verse 7. Same chapter, verse 7. The righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked does not understand such concern. The fact that they have no tolerance for falsehood or injustice means that they have a concern for those in society who are on the short end of justice, those who are being treated with injustice. The righteous are concerned about such things. They do not walk on by. They do not close their eyes. They do not ignore wickedness in high places. Finally, They recognize, the righteous, that God is their only hope. That ultimately God is their only hope. Proverbs 18 and verse 10. God is their only hope. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. God is their only hope. He is their fortress. He is their strong tower. The righteous run to God. Now, that's a jet tour. There's a lot more there. Let's go back to Matthew 5. This is what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What kind of righteousness? The kind of righteousness that we briefly have finished looking at here in the Proverbs. Those who who want to be and do what is right in the sight of God. 
They long to see others live that way as well. They are eager to live their lives the way God requires us to live. They could take the words of Jesus to their mouths. John 4 and verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. A person who is hungry and thirsty in the natural realm has only one consuming passion. Isn't that right? They have one consuming passion. That passion is to find and consume food and beverage. They are hungry and they are thirsty. Nothing else is more important to them at that point in time than putting something into their stomach and putting some water into their mouths. They are driven by it. The strong words. And Jesus uses this metaphor here in, in verse 6, doesn't he? He uses this metaphor, and, and he does, by doing this, he, he's talking about the desire for righteousness among his followers. He's saying, this is what it means to be my disciple. In principle, this is your new direction in life, to, to be consumed, to be famished for righteousness. This is your new target. This is your new goal. This is the pursuit of your life. Righteousness. It's intense. And by the way, it's, it's an ongoing quest. Verse 6. These are Greek present active participles. participles. Well, the, the point of all of that is that these are not one-time events. These are ongoing characteristics of what it means to be a disciple. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we could translate it. It is an ongoing quest to be righteous. It's not enough to know we lack the righteousness that we both desire and that God wants of us. That, that knowledge of our lack needs to drive us in our quest as followers of Jesus Christ. It needs to be our passion needs to be our pursuit. And if it is, notice the promise here in verse 6. Those who are famished for righteousness, what does he say? They will be satisfied. They will be satisfied. There is, there is a, an answer at the end. Satisfied. It's an interesting Greek word. It's a graphic word, actually. It's used for fattening animals. It's, it implies being very well fed. We could, we could translate it in sort of a colloquial way as stuffed. Okay? How you feel on, on Thanksgiving afternoon? Okay? Not before the meal, after the meal. Blessed are those who famish. Okay? That's Thanksgiving at about 10 o'clock in the morning. Okay? Or, you know, thereabouts. This word, satisfied, is stuffed. That's how you feel about 4 o'clock in the afternoon when someone says, you want another slice of pie? And you go, no. Okay? Even the kind of pie I love, I can't jam another bite down. That's the idea here. They're stuffed. The verb here, they are satisfied, is a, is a future Passive verb, and, and all that indicates to us is, is that it is God is the one who will do the filling. 
That's the idea. Those who are famished for righteousness, they shall be stuffed. They will not stuff themselves. They will be stuffed. That is, God will satisfy them. He will fill them. This idea is very common in the Old Testament, by the way. Psalm 107, verses 8 and 9. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Or how about Isaiah chapter 55 and verses 1 and 2. Oh, everyone who thirsts, the prophet writes, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance, the Lord says. It is God who will satisfy. Later on in Jesus' ministry, by the way, he invokes these same kinds of images. John's gospel records it for us. John 6 and verse 48 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. John 7 and verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. It's God that is the one who stuffs us with righteousness. He is the one who satisfies. So there's a contrast going on here between starving now, being stuffed later. Starving now, stuffed later. And it's built, this, this future fulfillment of, the, of this intense desire for, for righteousness invokes promises from the Old Testament. And it invokes the, the messianic promises of the Old Testament. It is in Messiah's kingdom, ultimately, that righteousness will, will be in full display. And it will be a righteousness for not just individuals, but for society as large, at large. So, so take a look with me at this. Let's go to Isaiah 61. Take a look at this. Isaiah 61, verses 10 and 11. By the way, note the context of Isaiah 61. It begins in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, right? Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus read these words in the synagogue in Nazareth. But notice verses 10 and 11. It is Messiah who brings both personal and societal righteousness. Verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. It is Messiah who brings righteousness. And it is Messiah who brings righteousness righteousness because righteousness is his name. It is the very name of Messiah. Jeremiah chapter 23 Jeremiah 23, verse 5. The prophet Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkeyu in the Hebrew, the Lord our righteousness. It is his name. It is also, by the way, the name of his city. It is the name of his capital city, Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, and beginning in verse 14. It's the name of Messiah, is righteousness, and the name of his capital city is righteousness. Jeremiah 33, and beginning in verse 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Same Hebrew construction. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burnt grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. It is in Messiah's kingdom, the establishment of the great millennial kingdom, in which Jesus, the greater son of David, will be revealed as one whose name is righteousness and who dwells in his capital city called righteousness. And he brings peace and justice and righteousness, verse 15, upon the entire earth. My friends, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to long for these things. It is, to, it is to be famished for these things. Not just our own personal righteousness. That, yes. But in even a greater way to long for a day when God's name is no longer a curse. But it is a word of praise upon the lips of people. It is to long for righteousness. To be famished for righteousness. And, and as his disciples, and this is who we are, he promises us someday it will be fulfilled. That's what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. So how are we doing? Let's evaluate. Where do we stand? This is true of us in principle. If you know Christ as your Savior this morning, this is true of you in principle. The question becomes is, where is it missing in practice? It's true in principle, yes, but where is it missing in practice? As I I begin to evaluate myself, where am I falling short? Where is my discipleship defective? Where do I need to grow? In the likeness of Jesus Christ. Well, it begins with the Scriptures. It begins with the Scriptures because we learn what it means to be righteous from the Word of God. From the Word of God. So the first question to ask when we evaluate ourselves is, is do you hunger for the Word of God or do you merely nibble at it? 
Do you hunger for the Word of God or do you merely nibble at it? The psalmist writes in Psalm 119 and verse 97, Oh, I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I love the law of God. I, I love the Word of God, the disciple says. Proverbs 27 and verse 7. A sated man loathes honey, but to a famished man any bitter thing is sweet. What the proverb says is when you're stuffed, you're not hungry. But when you're hungry, you'll eat anything. Now what in the world does that have to do with the Word of God? Well, here's the answer. Is that when we are famished for righteousness and we understand that 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 our, that our understanding of righteousness comes from the Word of God, then we hunger for the Word of God, and we hunger for the correction that the Word of God brings us. Even admonition is sweet to the soul of a disciple of Jesus Christ. He is hungry to hear the Word of God, even when it corrects him. Why? Because he knows as as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, that, that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but afterwards it yields what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. A disciple of Jesus Christ welcomes the correction to his life that comes from the Word of God because he understands that afterwards it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There is a notion in the church today at large that, that preaching has to be positive and upbeat. And that you can't, you can't talk to people about hard topics and you, and you can't preach about sin and you, and you can't preach in a way that, that actually corrects people's behavior and attitudes. Because if you do that, they're not going to like you. They're going to leave. My friends, only unbelievers walk away. Disciples of Jesus Christ come to the correction because they understand that it's, it's essential for their soul. Do you hunger for the Word of God? Or do you merely nibble at it? Second question. Do you long for an intimate relationship with God? Is that the longing of your heart? Do you long for, for an intimate relationship with God? David writes in Psalm 63, verse 1, O oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do you come on Sunday morning longing for God? Longing to be intimate with God? Third, are you living in light of eternity? Are you living your life in light of eternity? Where is your kingdom? Where is your kingdom? And you know, Jesus said that the most practical way to evaluate the answer to that question is to pull out your check register. Did you know that? Take a look at where you're spending your money and it will reveal the priorities of your life. Are you living in light of eternity? Fourth, are you characterized by contentment, generosity, and compassion? You remember 
The Proverbs speak of these as the characteristics of a righteous person. Contentment, generosity, compassion. Fifth, do you keep your word? Do you keep your word? Years ago, more than 30 years ago now, when I first graduated from college and I started in banking, and I worked for this fellow who was near the end of his career. He had been at it a very long time. And we were talking one day at lunch, and, and he was lamenting the fact that every, every loan transaction now had to have a thick stack of legal documents that went with it. He said, you know, when I got started in this business, I could shake a man's hand and look him in the eye, and he'd pay me back. Now I have to have three inches of legal documentation, and that's no guarantee. How good is your word? How good is your word? Are you the same person in private that you are in public? Are you the same person behind your doors as you are in public? How's your integrity? How's your character? Sixth, do you care about the deterioration of society? Do you care? And are you willing to do anything about it? This one's hard. I mean, it's so easy to get overwhelmed, to to grow insensitive, isn't it, to all that goes on? I mean, you, you, you look at the news headlines and it's one horrible story after another. And we grow cold to it all. But my friends, God would not have that for us. He would not have that for us. I'm reminded of a man by the name of William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce. He was an MP. You know what that means? Not military police. He was a member of parliament. You know, he was on the other side of the pond, right? William Wilberforce. He lived, he was born in 1759. He died in 1833. He was converted to Christ at a relatively young age. He served a very long and illustrious career as a member of parliament. He is most well known for almost single-handedly conducting a 26-year campaign to end black slavery in Britain. Against all odds, against all humiliations and harassments, against all kinds of backdoor political shenanigans, that undercut him at almost every turn because there was a lot of money being made in black slavery. This man stood and he labored tirelessly. And just before he died, he saw the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. It would take a civil war in the United States. The death of a half a million people Soldiers, to end black slavery in this country. God used this man because he he cared. He was a righteous man, and he cared about this manifest evil, and he gave himself towards seeing it overturned. This is practical righteousness. Well, in a few minutes that are left, how do we cultivate this? 
How do we go about cultivating this? And, and I can tell you, when I put this together and evaluated myself against it, I, I fall short in every category. Every single category. I find myself falling short. We're together in this mess. It is by the grace of God that we will grow. You know, we have to grow. Did you know that? You know, the beauty of this is, is that, that God has begun a good work in you and he has promised that what will he do with it? He's going to bring it to completion, right? He's going to do it. But he's going to do it as we embrace it and work towards it. So how do we go about cultivating it? Here's a few suggestions. Hunger and thirst are strong terms. I don't know that Jesus could have chosen any other terms to describe what it means to, to pursue righteousness, right? He says that, that they hunger. They are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. These are strong words. And they are, they are words of desire and words of drive. There's an active sense to these words. So if we, if we really are wanting righteousness, listen to me now, then, then we will avoid everything that is opposed to it. That's number one. That's number one. If we really, really want to grow in righteousness, then we will avoid everything that is opposed to it, everything that hinders it. Even those things which are lawful but are not profitable, according to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 10.23. We will avoid them. Secondly, if we really want righteousness, if we really, really want to grow in righteousness, then we will order our priorities so that we eat properly. To keep the metaphor going. We will order our priorities so that we eat properly. What do I mean? I mean by this that we will make time for the things of God. We will make time for the things of God and we will put ourselves in a place where the things of God are found. Let me be a little more specific. Church attendance. When the doors are open, we'll be here. We will be here. Why will we be here? Because this is where the Word of God is taught. This is where the, the brothers and sisters gather. This is, this is where we exhort and encourage and admonish one another to love and good deeds. Church is not optional. We'll spend time reading the Scriptures. Now, the practical. We'll spend time reading the, reading the Scriptures. This is making time to eat properly. But, but, but Pastor, I, you know, I get up really early to go to work, and I get it. I understand. I used to get up really early to go to work. I had a 40-mile commute. I made it every day for years. We will order our priorities such that Bible reading becomes a part of our lives. We will not nibble at the Word of God. We will consume the Word of God. And we will participate in the Christian fellowship. We will not withhold ourselves from Christian fellowship. And we're really hungry, really, really hungry 
then these are, these are musts. These are non-negotiables. You're feeling disconnected from the fellowship, perhaps. Maybe you feel like your, your relationship with God has grown a bit cool. God's not as real to you as he once was. The, the passion of your heart doesn't burn hot like it, like it once burned. My friends, God has not moved. You have moved. You have moved. God stands there with his arms wide open in Christ. And he says, come, come on back. Come on back. Third, pray. Pray for God to change your desires. Pray for God to change your desires. Maybe you say, but, but I don't really desire to read my Bible right now. Well, then, then pray that God would change those desires. And then you know what else? Not only pray that God will change your desires, but then begin immediately to live as if those desires have already been changed. Pray for God to do this and then begin in faith to step out and obey. Like people tell me, Pastor, I have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning for work. I say, Do you own an alarm clock? Well, yeah. I said, Set it. Well, yeah, but, but, but then I set it and it goes off. And I said, And then? Well, then I push the snooze button. I said, don't do that. When it goes off, get up. Yeah, but I don't feel like getting up. Like, that's irrelevant. I mean, that doesn't even enter into it. I don't feel like getting up. Like, so what? Get up! And you know what? When you start getting up, you get like I am. I don't even need an alarm clock anymore. It's terrible. Saturday morning, 6 o'clock, bang, open come the eyes. And I get up. I get up. And listen, it's the same kind of idea. Pray that God will change your desires and, th- and then begin immediately to act as if those desires have already been changed. And, and what you'll notice is that, that in not very long, your desires actually will change. But obedience is not based on desire. Obedience, it comes from the will. The desire follows, or not. But it doesn't change the obedience. Fourth, how do I cultivate a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? Fourth, spend time with unbelievers. Spend time with unbelievers so that you you remember what it is to be like without Christ. If you've walked with Christ for a long time, you've forgotten the hopelessness of those who are without Jesus Christ. You have forgotten how sin devastates a human life. You've forgotten how hopeless and helpless people really are. Why do they do the things they do? Because they are slaves to their own sin. Passion. We cut ourselves off. When we cut ourselves off, we, we no longer we no longer long for righteousness. What we begin to long for is to be rid of all of these people that bother us. 
We begin to have that fortress mentality, right? Let's lock them out so they don't pollute us. Rather than opening our heart to them with the gospel of Christ. Jesus says his disciples are people who are absolutely famished for righteousness. Absolutely famished. You know, we're right here against the close of the year, aren't we? 2011, where did it go? It's almost gone. 2012 was right on its heels. We're going to close it out next week. We're going to open it the following, right? Another year gone. I pray. I pray for us as a congregation that, that our hunger, our appetite for the righteousness of God will, will begin to grow next year in a way that we have not observed in a very long time. You join me and pray that way? May God transform his people, huh? Let's pray. Our Father, this section of Scripture is so challenging. It is so challenging, Lord, because it reveals how far we are from the ideal. And it's easy to read this and to grow discouraged. And I, and I pray, Father, that today my brothers and sisters would not be discouraged by what the things we have talked about. Oh, Lord, we fall woefully short, and every one of us can look at our lives and we, and we see a lot of deficiencies. And yet, our Father, we, we also know we're not the same people we once were. We're not who we want to be, and, and we're not who we're going to be. But, but praise the Lord, we're not who we once were. Father, you are at work. Your Spirit is at work in us. We thank you for that and, and we embrace it and we, we ask that you would continue the good work you've begun in us and, and we pray, Father, that you would help us to put into practice in this coming year some of these things we've talked about. Oh, Lord, that we would grow in righteousness. Not some self-righteousness, not, not some works-based religion in which we somehow feel like that you work part of the way and we finish it out. Oh, Lord, we are entirely and fully dependent 100% upon your grace. And yet, oh, Lord, in your grace, you have said we need to obey. So, Lord, may you grant what you require. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, it is so, so good to be with you. So good to be with you. You have a great week, and you come back here Christmas morning, 1030. It's going to be fantastic. Okay? God bless.